This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. But with that, let's now turn to God's Word. Like I said, we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and starting to dip into chapter 4. It's been a few weeks since we were in this book as we took some time to look at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. But before Easter, we were going through this book from the Old Testament and looking at what the writer of Ecclesiastes has to say about life. That's what this book is all about, is just our existence here on this earth. And the writer has been wrestling through what is at times a painful existence in an existence that seems to be bleak, monotonous, or repetitive. And he's been wondering, is there purpose to it? Is there meaning to it? And what is the point of all of this living? So that's where we've been for several weeks now in Ecclesiastes, and that's where we're going to pick back up. And so if you have your Bible open to chapter 3, I will read from us starting in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That they may see themselves, that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And the man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot, who can bring him to see what will be after him. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask as we look to your word, particularly this book and the questions that it's asking, that you might speak to our minds and our hearts. I ask that it would be your spirit who speaks in your words that fill our ears and that our affection for you might grow in this time and our knowledge of who you are and the things that you have done might become more rich and deep than it was before. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're back in Ecclesiastes. And at the beginning of chapter 3, where we were last time, the writer sets out a poem, almost, a list And he goes through and he says there's a time for everything. And if you remember, he talks about there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, there's a time where you plant your crops, there's a time when you reap your crops. And he says there seems to be a time and a season for everything in life. 
And his point in bringing all of that up is to say that despite what we want or despite how we want to control things, life is outside of our control. That the time to be born and that the time to die come, whether we like it or not. That the time to build up and the time for things to be torn down will come wholly outside of whether we want them to or not. And he says it seems that life just marches on from one event to the next and the seasons roll around and around. And we don't have any ability to slow them down, to prevent them from coming or to rush into the season we want. It's outside of our control. And so he looks to this world because there's a time and place for everything that happens whether we like it or not. And he concludes that probably the best that men and women can do is just to be joyful, eat, drink, and do good with the life that God has given them. He says that's God's gift to man, that we're able to at least enjoy the things that God has given us in this life and just take life as it comes to us one season as at a time. We haven't been given control of all the times and seasons, and so we just live on this earth and enjoy what God gives us as he gives it to us. But there's a lingering problem, and that's what he turns his attention to here in the second half of chapter 3. The problem is this, is that while there's a time and a season for everything— And while we can try to just simply enjoy life as we're able to live it here and now, the problem is that the world still isn't right. There's something broken about the world. And so we might say, I can just do my best to live a peaceable, joyful life and enjoy all the things that God has given me. But as I'm trying to live that out, I'm in a world full of wickedness. And the people that do right and try to live upright lives don't always get treated uprightly. Rather, those who do good, who try to pursue justice, are often given wickedness and evil instead. And so while we might try our best to enjoy the life here and now and enjoy the good things that God has given us, what the writer realizes is that good people don't always get good things. And even those who chase after justice and righteousness might not find it. He says, I look to the place of justice. I look to the place of righteousness. For a Hebrew in Israel, the place of justice and righteousness should have been his own nation. Israel was a nation and a people established and called out by God given a law to live holy lives, to be set apart from all the nations around them. So if there's any place where justice and righteousness should be present on earth, it would be Israel. Because they had God's law. They knew the way that they should walk. They had a government and kingdoms that were supposed to see that that law could be lived out by the people. They were given priests and an entire sacrificial system so that they might be a continually cleansed people that were looking to God and chasing after him. If there's any place we can find justice and righteousness, it should have been this country. But the writer says, I looked where I would expect to find justice, and I found wickedness. I looked where I thought I could find righteousness in a people that are supposed to be holy because the God who has called them out is holy. I looked there, 
and I found wickedness. So we have this lingering problem that we have no control over the world and the life that we have to live. So the best we can try to do is live peaceably, to live well and rejoice in all that God has done. But while we're doing that, we might just live lives that encounter evilness and wickedness every single day because justice isn't found where we want it to be. It's not found where it should be. This world is broken. So the writer turns his attention and he says, I looked out and I I hoped to find this justice, but I couldn't. And so when he witnesses the pervasiveness of wickedness in the world, how it infects every part of life, including the places you would expect to find fighting against evilness, he immediately goes to doctrine. And he brings up the truth that his people and his nation would have been taught. He says, surely God will judge. When he looks out at a world that is full of evil, his response is, surely God will judge. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Remember, he brought that up in the beginning of chapter 3. There's a time for everything in this world. And so surely there must be a time for judgment. There must be a time for justice and righteousness to prevail. And God will see to it that that happens. This idea of justice or of righteousness, of things being rightly ordered for humans to flourish, is a theme woven all throughout the Old Testament. We can see it even back in the creation account as God is creating the world. He orders it in such a way that he can look out and say that it's good. It's right. It's built the way it should be. It's built for human flourishing. And even after the world falls into sin because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, we see that God sets up ways for justice to be made. That's why we have the bulk of Moses' law to show us there is a way to make sacrifice and there is a way to atone for wickedness so that we might continue to pursue righteousness and what is just in our life. And so now the writer of Ecclesiastes, as he's sitting here, would have known that God is a God of justice. God is a God who delights in what is right and holy. He would have seen it all throughout the scriptures. Moses in Deuteronomy sings to the people of Israel a song. And at one point in his song, he says, I I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So the problem that the writer here is encountering is a world full of wickedness, but then he knows, surely God will judge, because we worship a God who is just and upright, a rock whose work is perfect. So that's his hope in verse 17, surely God will judge. There's a time and a season for everything. So that must include a time and a season for God's judgment, for God's justice to come. Surely he will come and set things right. 
so that those who do evil will get their comeuppance and those who do what's right will get their vindication and everything will be made the way it's supposed to be. So there seems to be a fleeting moment of comfort that though we look where we might expect righteousness and we see wickedness, you know, this world is ruled by a God of justice, so surely he must make it right. But this comfort doesn't last long. In the next verse, the writer begins his search for that time of judgment. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. The writer looks out and says, if surely God will judge is true, that's what we would have been taught as Israelites, that surely God will judge. If that's true, the next question is, well, when will he judge? When does he make all things right? When does he take those who do evil and wicked things and punish them? When does he take those who do right things and renew them? But as the writer looks throughout all of life, there doesn't seem to be one consistent point at which God judges the wicked and the righteous. In fact, it seems that some people are able to get away with their evil deeds for their entire life and face no consequences whatsoever. They can live an entire life of evil and wickedness and seemingly pay nothing for it. And so we have this great truth that surely God will judge then as we look out, we have to ask ourselves, well, where? When will that be? From the vantage point we have here in this life, there doesn't seem to be any sort of guarantee that God, in fact, will judge. Because someone can come and set themselves up as a wicked person. They can take advantage of others. They can build out an earthly kingdom where they gather anything they want and do whatever they please and face no consequences whatsoever. There's not always that happy ending where people get what they deserve. And so the conclusion that the writer begins to come to is maybe we're just like the animals. We live, we die, the world moves on. We're born we're able to do some things in this life, but eventually that life will leave us and we'll be buried in the ground and the world moves on and doesn't care one way or the other how wronged we were or how much wickedness and evilness we suffered under. Life just moves on. And we seem no different from any other living thing on earth says in verse 20, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth. Throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes, the writer is grappling with a tension. And that tension is he, the doctrines he knows about God, things like God is just and will judge, but also the experiences of living in this world. The experiences of wickedness and evilness, having a heyday, doing whatever they want, facing no judgment, no wrath, no consequences. And so he's caught in this tension. 
I know that God is supposed to be good and just, but I also know that the life I live here on earth doesn't feel good and just. And if God is so powerful and so just, why would this life here feel so tormented? That's what he's doing throughout this entire book. This book isn't just theological truth after theological truth. It's a man wrestling with life and saying, I I know what should be true, but my experience doesn't seem to match up with that truth. Have you ever wrestled in the same way? Can you sympathize with the, the writer of Ecclesiastes and say that my knowledge of God and his goodness sometimes seems at odds with the circumstances I find myself in? That on the one hand, I, I know I should be able to say, God is good and faithful and just. He is a rock without iniquity. But on the other hand, the cards that I've been dealt at different points in my life draw into question how good God really is. Maybe he's good, but he's just not paying attention in my case. Because things aren't going well. If you have if you've wrestled in that way, if you've come to those moments in your life where you say, I, I know what my lips are supposed to say, but my heart doesn't feel the same way. Ecclesiastes is an invitation to lean into that tension. It's an invitation to wrestle through the hardest moments of your life and see where God is in the midst of them. We don't have to ignore the hard things. We don't have to pretend like things are difficult. We don't have to pretend like evil and wickedness aren't running rampant through the world. We can acknowledge that, and we can acknowledge that God is good and understand there seems to be a tension there. But Then we can lean in and wrestle to see how can we have a good God in the midst of a world that is so broken. Throughout the 20th century, Christianity was a dominant religion in many parts of the world, including America and Europe. Much of the Western world was shaped by those who were Christians. And at any point where Christianity has become a dominant religion, we also have to understand that there are those who might have a biblical worldview of sorts, but are not actually those who trust in Christ for their salvation. So maybe their, their thoughts, maybe their thinking is shaped by what the Bible says, by the knowledge they have from God's word, even though their hearts are not transformed by Christ. But one of the things that happened in the 20th century were two world wars, almost back to back, within a few decades of each other, in which humanity got to see some of the ugliest, most evil despicable things we'd ever witnessed. Massive genocides. Violence like you could never imagine before. And after going through those experiences, much of the Western world was left to grapple with what we have just labeled the problem of evil. It's a problem that philosophers and theologians have wrestled with, and it's what this writer here in Ecclesiastes is wrestling with. This world is wicked. It is so broken and full of evil. And when you see the magnitude of that, like they were saw in World War I and World War II, when you see the magnitude of that, you can't help but wonder, is God really paying attention to his creation? 
is he really at the helm? And if he is, is he really as good and just as the Bible says he is? So for many coming out of those experiences in the 20th century, it became a turning point to say, maybe the biblical worldview doesn't really work because it doesn't seem to show us how a world could be so wicked. Again, that's the great tension that the writer of Ecclesiastes is working with here. So I'm stuck on this world. God's supposed to be just. All I can see is this life, and in this life, I can't see the justice I would expect. So here in Ecclesiastes, the writer concludes chapter 3 much the same way as he did earlier in the chapter by saying, perhaps the best thing we can do then is just try our best to enjoy the life God has given us. Verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The writer says, I guess my assignment is just to be here on earth, to see what I can in this world, and I'm not going to be able to see the satisfaction of God's judgment. And he concludes almost despairingly, my assignment is just to enjoy the life I have here as much as I can. Everything is vanity. That's where he started chapter one. Everything is vanity. It's a breath. It's here today. By tomorrow it will be gone and there will be new people. And we'll be forgotten. So just do the best we can. It's here, at the conclusion of chapter 3, that we now, thousands of years later, can thank God for his continued revelation. We can thank God that, that we are able to see more of his salvation plan than even the writer of Ecclesiastes could. Because as the writer looks out at the world and sees evil running rampant, the best conclusion he can come to is, I guess maybe it'll all get sorted out in the end, but I won't be around to see it, so I'll just enjoy what I can. But we know, having seen more of God's revelation, that God surely will judge. Just like the writer acknowledged in verse 17, we know God will judge evil. In fact, he did judge and God didn't judge evil in some spiritual place beyond this world that we have no knowledge of. God judged and displayed his justice here on earth. The writer of Ecclesiastes has again and again looked out at everything under the sun. That is to say, in this life, on this earth, what can we see and what can we know? And what we can see and know from our vantage point is that we are the wicked and evil that are run amok across this earth. It's our own sin and iniquity that plays into the brokenness of this world. And we know that God does look at that iniquity and judges our trespasses, saying they are deserving of death and wrath. And we know that he gave that sentence to a willing substitute who took the cup of his wrath and drank it down to every last drop, leaving no part of that sentence left for us, so that any who would repent and believe are given mercy. 
And we know that that happened under the sun. That happened here on this earth on a hill outside of Jerusalem. So we no longer have to wonder if God will truly judge. We no longer have to wonder if he's really on the side of justice and righteousness. Because we've seen on this earth that he is. We have seen that God will bring about a full redemption. Because he judged on Calvary. And then Jesus rose from the dead to confirm that death was defeated and God had every plan and authority to make things right. And that all happened here on this earth. The writer of Ecclesiastes despairs because he says if there is some justice, it's beyond human's sight. But here we stand in 2021 knowing that God's justice was in fact displayed within human's sight, here on the dirt of this earth, we got to see God's judgment. So we can continue to wrestle like the writer of Ecclesiastes between what at times seems like an irreconcilable difference between what we know of God and what we see here on earth. But we can rest knowing that he is a God of justice and righteousness. He is a God who will make things right, and he displayed that on the cross. So luckily, we are able to draw a different conclusion than the writer of Ecclesiastes does at the end of chapter 3. Life is not vanity. We know whether a spirit will go down to the dirt like the animals or go up into the heavens. We know that for all those who are in Christ, that they will be caught up and see God face to face, and they'll be together with him. We know that for those who are trusting in the salvation made possible through the blood of Jesus' crucifixion, that we don't just decay into dust to never again exist, but rather we have a life that is eternal and secured. So life is not vanity. Life is full of joy, even in the midst of the evil and wicked things we see. We have that guarantee through Jesus' work. So do you know this? Is your hope built on this? Are you hoping that any evil or wicked thing that you've witnessed or suffered under in your life is going to be made right in your lifetime so you can rest satisfied? Are you resting satisfied knowing that all the evil and wicked things will be made right by God through the work of Jesus Christ? Put your hope firmly on Christ and his work. And even in the light of this glorious truth, there's still tension. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Even though Jesus went to the cross, even though 
He said, it is finished. Even though three days after his death, he rose again and showed his power over death, we still live in a time where evil and wickedness is allowed to run through this world. Though we know that a full redemption is coming and it is fully guaranteed, we still suffer and groan with creation because of the weight of sin. Since the time that I started preparing this sermon, there have been several events that have unfolded. After Adam preached last Sunday, I knew that I was next up on the schedule. I like to look at the passage early in the week and begin to think on it and meditate on it and then do most of the prep towards the end. And and so I, I try to spend a week preparing And in the time since I started that, we've seen a high-profile shooting in Minnesota. A 20-year-old man was killed at a traffic stop. A video has been released of a 13-year-old boy who was shot and killed in Chicago. There was a mass shooting in Indianapolis that resulted in the death of eight people. There was a shooting at a mall in Nebraska where one was killed and others were injured. These events unfolded in the past seven days. They all took place since the last time we sat in this room and worshiped together. It's not a recap of things that have happened in 2021. That's from this last week. And I know that as soon as I mention these events, the room can get a little bit more tense. Because when we hear of these events and events like this, we're quick to attach a narrative, to maybe find a justification, or to look for a solution and an explanation. But we so often do so by looking at things that are under the sun, things that are here on earth. And so we hear of these things and we race to the answer. We hear of these things and we think, It's about gun control or gun rights, mental health screenings or youth programs. Maybe they're social programs. Maybe it's about having enough concealed carriers. Or maybe what we need is reform somewhere. Or we need some sort of legislation enacted. Or we need to make sure this doesn't become an event that will lead to the further restriction of rights. And we race to all sorts of conclusions and explanations. And brothers and sisters, I want to say to you this morning, I don't believe that any of those responses are as biblical as they could be. Rather, when we hear of these things, I don't think we should rush to the answers of this world. I think when we hear of these things, we should weep. We should weep and lament at the evil and wickedness that's in our world. We should lament that we live in a world where traffic stops become fatal. Before we have to come to any decision of who is at fault or what could have been done differently, we should lament that we live in a world where traffic stops become fatal. We should lament that we live in a world where there's any scenario that involves police officers, 13-year-olds, and handguns. We should lament that mass shooting is an everyday phrase for our country. 
all of these things are evidence of an evil and wicked world. Psalm 46 says that there is a holy city of God where he breaks the bow and shatters the spear and makes wars cease. Any violence is a display of sin running through our world. You can come to all sorts of conclusions after that fact about what's right, who's in the right, who's in the wrong, but any violence shows us that where we look hoping to find justice, we instead will find wickedness because our world is broken. So the first thing we should do when we hear these things is lament the extent of wickedness in our world and be grieved at the destruction and violence of sin. And I think as we lament, we can also uniquely as Christians comfort Because we've been comforted by God himself. Now we can, as Paul says to the Corinthians, comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We have a unique opportunity to go to those who are oppressed, to go to those who are afflicted, to those who are suffering under the evil weight of sin, and we can comfort them with the hope of the gospel, of a justice that will make all things right. And we can comfort them with a tangible presence that gives a taste of that justice that God will bring about. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, where you see those who are hungry, feed them. Where you see those who are thirsty, give them something to drink. Where you see a stranger, welcome them in. Where you see those who are naked and without clothes, clothe them. Where you see those who are sick, visit them. Where you see those who are imprisoned, go to them. We can bring about a tangible presence of the justice that God is bringing through his son, Jesus Christ. We go with the hope of the gospel and a life eternal, but we also go with a physical presence that shows God's goodness. So when we see wickedness, we don't have to respond like those who only see what's under the sun and here on earth. We can respond with lamenting the evil of this world and with comforting those that are affected from the great hope that we have in Jesus. And so in this, we can say it's not better to have never been born Because in this life now, we have Christ. We have the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of his people, the renewing of our minds. And we have a ministry of reconciliation to those who are without comfort in this world, to those who are oppressed, to those who have tears because of the evilness of this world. We have a ministry of reconciliation. In this life, we don't have vanity. We have Christ And as we face death, we have an immeasurable, eternal gain. That is our hope in a world racked by sin. God surely will judge. He showed that on the cross. 
and he's given us a taste of that justice and righteousness. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would keep us aware and mindful of your goodness and your righteousness. That even as we face things in this world that seem to indicate that wickedness is the victor, you would remind us of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection that on this earth displayed your power and your hunger to see what is right prevail. And I ask that you would make us ministers of that hope, hope of your gospel. And we might be ministers with a tangible presence in the world so that those who are afflicted may have us to comfort them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.